It's an incredible schos to be here with all of you this Tisha B'Av afternoon. First, actually begin by thanking the Mishpachal who dedicated this year today, Le'ilei Nishmas Chayim Yishayo, Allah Vashalom Ben Yosef. We hope that in the merit of our Talmud Torah, the Nisham will have an Aliyah and the family in Nechama. I say it's a privilege to be here with all of you, because as I often say each year by this year, It's been too long as a nation, Klal Yisrael, that we have to keep observing Tisha B'Av after Tisha B'Av, tragedy after tragedy. But the truth is, sometimes in life, when you can't get circumstances exactly as you would want them to be, you have to find appreciation in the way that they are. So as much as none of us wanted another Tisha B'Av, and I'm sure... Almost every single one of us was sure that last year was going to be the last Tisha B'Av. We find ourselves here. We see that HaKadosh Baruch Hu has a different kind of plan for us in this year. And our job, which is the job always of the Jew, is to maximize circumstances. In life, there are two kinds of people. The truth is, there are many more than two kinds of people. But for our purposes this afternoon, there are two kinds of people. There are people who lament the fact that life has not gone their way. And they may have good reason to do so because they had a different vision for life, a different picture, a different approach. And unfortunately, things have not materialized the way they had hoped. And so, they spend all of their energy lamenting, complaining about how things have simply not materialized the way that they had hoped, the way they had prayed, the way they had anticipated then there are other kinds of people. And the second group takes that which is and recognizing that no matter how much you complain or no matter how upset, disenfranchised or disillusioned one may be, sometimes things just are what they are. And so my obligation is to maximize those circumstances. And today is a day like that. I think when we were approaching Tisha B'Av in the week leading up to Tisha B'Av, the focus, of course, as it should be, is very much as there's still time to turn around, there's still time to change things, there's still time to develop this day into something else. And then the day comes. And Tisha B'Av, as we know, has a profound progression. When it first starts, it hits you like a ton of bricks. From the moment that the haunting tune of Eicha begins, a person finds themselves enveloped by 2,000 years of sadness. And as the day continues, if you're a feeling person, and you open your heart and you open your neshama to the enormity of this day, you could almost find yourself paralyzed by grief. Thinking about all of the catastrophes, all of the destruction, all of the tragedies that have befallen our people over the last 2,000 years, it literally is enough to paralyze a person in place. And Chazal gave physical form to this. This is why we don't greet each other on Tisha B'Av which is so antithetical to a Jew. A Jew is supposed to be happy. A Jew is supposed to be the simcha. We'll talk about this a little bit later. A Jew is supposed to greet every single person. But yet the halacha tells us on this day that we're not permitted to greet one another. We sit on a low chair. We deprive ourselves of basic physical comforts because we are overwhelmed by the enormity of the day. And I want to tell you something. You don't need to go to a kinnis presentation or to a shir and bar Hashem. We live in an age where there is so much available. All you have to do is take a few moments to retreat into yourself, to be one with your neshama. And the coursing pain of cloud Yisrael runs through your body.
Because Tisha B'Av is a day like no other. Tisha B'Av is a day which contains the pain of 2,000 years in its pure, unadulterated form. But then something amazing happens. The clock strikes 12, metaphorically. Chatzos, midday comes, and everything changes. And the truth is, you feel it. You even feel it in the day. There's a lighter mood. You know, you see people coming in. And you know what often happens when people start coming in? They want to say hello, but they're not going to say hello. But I want to say hello. So I give that awkward smile, like maybe like like a this. You know, I'm not sure exactly. And it's good. That's the way it's supposed to be. At Chatzos, at midday, the nature of the day fundamentally changes. We place the parochas, the curtain back on the Aron Kodesh. We no longer sit on the ground. And in fact, halacha is filled with many fascinating leniencies, most of which we don't usually incorporate into our halachic practice. But fascinating leniencies, leniencies like communities that already started to do laundry after midday on Tisha B'Av. Ah, Right? Imagine such a thing like that. But even if we don't accept it, the truth is it tells us about the nature of the switch that happens. There's a switch that's flipped at Chatzos. The pain, it's still there. It's still there. But it changes. The sadness, it's still there. But it changes. I'll tell you something amazing. I've often wondered about this dynamic, about this change, and actually it struck me today during Kinnis. And one of the most beautiful Kinnis, they're all beautiful and moving Kinnis, but one of the Kinnis that we say is, Yerushalayim. We contrast two forms of Exodus when we left Egypt and when we left Yerushalayim. And the Kina goes into great detail describing how when we left Mitzrayim, when we left Egypt, we were filled with such simcha, such happiness, such joy, such promise, such hope for the future. And when we left Yerushalayim, we were so downtrodden. We were so broken. As David HaMelech writes prophetically in Tehillim, Al Naros Babel. When our ancestors were led out of Yerushalayim and they sat by the banks of the river of Bavel, they began to cry when they remembered Yerushalayim. And that kina does something very important. That kina links the experiences of Pesach together with Tisha B'Av. And you say to yourself, no connection at all. The Baba of Rebbe, Zechitzate the Rebbe who lost virtually his entire family, save one son in the war, had an interesting minog. He would always save a piece of his afikomen from Pesach, and he would eat it at the Suda HaMafsekes, the meal before Tisha B'Av. People said, Rebbe, what are you doing? The Rebbe always just said one thing. I take the afikomen that reminds us of when we left Egypt and I eat it on the eve before Tisha B'av when we remember leaving Yerushalayim. But there's another connection. And the additional connection is the Pesach Seder itself undergoes a fundamental transition. The entire first part of the Seder is focused on what was and the second part of the Seder from the meal, really from benching and on, after benching and on, kosher, ilio and on, is focused on what will be. The first part of the Seder is focused on our redemption from Mitzrayim and the second part of the Seder is focused on messianic arrival. The Mashiach is going to come. That Geula is not something of the past, but Geula is something of our future. And the difference is the same dynamic on Tisha B'av. The first part of the day is losing yourself in the pain of the past. 
It's not an intellectual experience. It's not a cognitive experience. It's an emotional, spiritual experience. It's an experience often that is felt without words. And it's an experience that doesn't appeal to some idea, but it's an experience that is totally felt in an enormous and overwhelming tidal wave of emotional pain. And then comes midday, and there's a shift. What's the shift? The shift that I was experiencing all of this pain. And sometimes when you live with too much pain, you lose the ability to see something beautiful in the future. And comes midday of Tishabav, Chatzos, we flip the switch. It's not just about mourning anymore for what was lost. It's about eagerly anticipating and pining for what will be. The second part of Tishabav is when we dust ourselves off, we get back up, we dry our tears, and we figure out how to plan for a better future. Because I think you'll all agree with me. This is the last Tishabav that I ever want to observe. This is the last Tishabav. It's been so many thousands of years of Tishabav. We say, enough, enough. But as a Jew, I know it's not enough to say enough. I have to do something. So the second part of Tishabav is when we begin to think about and reflect what can we do to change the tide of Jewish destiny? What can we do as individual and as, as a collective to ensure that when we make Havdalah tonight, this will be the last Tishabav of mourning that we will ever experience and ever observe? So I want to share with you something amazing. Take a look at number one on your sheet. A Gemara that probably I've quoted many, many times over the course of the Shi'urim here on Tishabav afternoon. Amir Rava, Rava said, Adam Ladin After 120, when a person is brought to the Beisdin Shalal, the celestial court, in order to give an accounting for the life that they have led. So you ask this series of questions. And what are the questions? Question number one. Were you honest in your business dealings? It's incredible. It's not our topic for today. But it is startling and amazing that that's the first question. Not, did you use plastic on your Shabbos tablecloth? <laughs> as important as that is. Did you conduct business honestly? Were you a person who lived with honesty and integrity? Were you a person who treated... And by the way, if you notice, it doesn't just say, were you honest with Jews? Because anyone who's just honest with Jews and takes liberties with our Gentile neighbors is probably not a person you should do business with either. Did you conduct yourself honestly? Question two. Did you set aside time to learn Torah? Now, while it's true that most of the commentaries explain that this is a question specifically asked of men, because a man has an obligation each and every day to set aside time to learn, whether it's 20 minutes or two hours, every single Jewish man has an obligation to learn Torah. Many of the Rishonim explain, but what's that? Women aren't asked this question? Women are absolutely asked this question. So what does it mean for a woman? What it means for a woman is, did you carve out time in your daily activity, in your daily routine for spiritual growth? For spiritual growth. Is spiritual growth, a relationship with Hashem, something that was important enough for you to find expression in your daily life? And question number three, which is our question for today. I'm sorry, first question number three. Did a person try to have a family? Having a family is not necessarily something you could control. Finding a spouse is not something you could control. Having children is something you could control. Asakta. Did you try? Did you try? And the last question. Tzipisali Yeshua. Tzipisali Yeshua. So the English translation over here is, did you hope for salvation? 
Sapia could mean hope. Sapia could also mean to look. Did you look for salvation? And of course, this last question is understood as a reference to Mashiach. And we normally understand that what it means is did you, life, did you live a life of messianic anticipation, anticipation? Excuse me. Did you live a life where you were constantly looking and yearning and pining for Mashiach? Did you live a life where each and every day I was excited? Did I live a life where really, really, I wanted Mashiach to come each and every day? If you look at number two, the Minchas Asher of Asher Weiss tells a beautiful story. He writes, We know that there are many stories of great men, great tzaddikim, who spent their lives, who spent their lives waiting for Mashiach. Who tells about the Yismach Moshe. The Yismach Moshe was Rav Moshe Teitelbaum, who was the Rav of Uihel, which was a town, became an epicenter of Yiddishkeit in Hungary, Romania. The Rebbe lived from 1756 to 1841. And they tell about the Yismach Moshe. The Yismach Moshe would sleep with his hat and his jacket and his cane right next to his bed. Because he wanted to be sure that if Mashiach would come, he would be ready to go. He did not want any delay in his ability to greet the Messianic King. And he quotes over here a story about Sipir Maran, Shepam Achas Himtin Sadik Niskov Zel Echa Tzadikim. Listen to this story. One time the Yismach Moshe was waiting for a hush of a guest. There was another one of the Rabbanim who was coming to visit him. And he was waiting in his home in Uyal for this particular guest. And what happens? He's sitting by the dining room table waiting. The Shamish, his attendant, walks in. And the Shamish walks in, tells the Yismach Moshe two words. He's here. He's here. And the Yismach Moshe hears this. Moshe was an old man already at this age, this time. Jumped out of his seat. And he said, Baruch Hashem, Shezachinu Baruch Hashem, the end has come. Mashiach is here. Poor Gaba, he had to tell the Yismach Moshe. It's not Mashiach, it's that other guy. That other guy. But that's what it means to wait for Mashiach. Every single day a sense of excitement. Every single day a sense of anticipation. Every single day a looking forward to that which is going to occur, that which will be. And the run in number three writes, Tzipisili Yeshua, Vod Tzarech Levair Tzipisili Yeshua Biyamecha. The run adds in that there's another piece to this. There's another piece. That Tzipisili Yeshua doesn't just simply mean a waiting or a yearning or a pining for Mashiach, but it means a belief. That I believe that Mashiach could come in my days. In my days. I had a little boy who came over to me at Kiddush this week. Come to find as I get older, I learn the best lessons simply by listening to children. A little boy comes over to me at Kiddush this week, and he says, Rabbi, should I fast this Tisha B'Av? I said, tell me, what would you like to do? He said, such a... A sincere young boy, eight, nine years old, he said, I really think I should fast. I said, why? He said, because, that's what he said. He said, every Jew has an obligation to feel the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash. The losses of Klal Yisrael. I think I should fast. I told him he's not allowed to Fast. I said, I want to tell you why you're not allowed to fast. Explain to him that there is no mitzvah of chinuch by Tisha B'av. See, in general, when it comes to every other mitzvah, 
there's an obligation to teach your children when they're young about how to perform mitzvos so that when they reach the age of majority, they know what to do and how to do it. So, my children are obligated to begin to fast on Yom Kippur at least part of the day, even before their Barabbas mitzvah. They have an obligation to be able to understand what the mitzvah means. No different than every other mitzvah that we get our children habituated to, accustomed to performing, even before they're obligated. But if Avram Yitzchak HaKohen Kuk says, there is no mitzvah of chinuch by Tishabav. Do you know why not? Because what does it tell your child if you train them to fast on Tishabav? What you're communicating to your child is Mamalatatala Mashiach is not going to be here before you become a bar mitzvah, bas mitzvah. So you better get working. You better get fasting. Because Gullus is a staple. Because this is how it is, and this is how it's going to be. They told this little boy in the midst of the cacophony of Kiddush. I said, you are never going to have to fast on a Tisha B'av. You're not going to have to fast. And you have to believe that with every single shred of your being. This year, maybe we'll have to. But an eight, nine-year-old boy, Mashiach, is going to come so soon, way before you become a bar mitzvah. For you, there's no chinuch in Tisha B'av. The Ran says that so often we think about Mashiach, and we think about Mashiach as a concept. Do I believe in Mashiach? Of course, we all believe in Mashiach. According to the Rabbim, it's one of the 13 principles of faith. But I believe in Mashiach as an abstract. I believe in Mashiach as a concept. But let's be honest. Do I actually believe that he could show up today? Do, do I actually believe that? Does that actually find expression in my life? And I think the answer very often is no, and not because we lack belief. I think it's often because we can't quite figure it out. What exactly happens when Mashiach comes? What happens with my life? Where do I live? Where do I go? Who's going to sell my house? How am I going to buy a new house? I'm in the middle of a lease. Right? What happens to my job? What happens... So there's so many like logistical issues, and we're a people of logistics. There are so many logistical issues that Mashiach brings up that I say to myself, you know what? I guess when Mashiach comes, we'll figure it out. But often it remains as an abstract, not an actual reality. Not something that I could actually see coming to fruition today or tomorrow. And so the Ram comes along and he says, Sipisili Yeshua, there's one more word on that. It's not just Sipisili Yeshua, did you look for salvation, did you look for Mashiach, there's one more word. Biyamecha. Did you believe that it could happen in your days? Did you believe? And I have to think to myself, do we believe? I know we believe. But do we believe like the Ran? Biyamecha. Do I believe that Mashiach could literally be a reality right here and now? But there's another question, a more technical question, which is if you look at the wording of the Gemara, the last question that HaKadosh Baruch Hu asks us is Tzipisa Yeshua. And if I were to ask you, if you were writing the questions for the Beis Din Shamalu, you were writing the questions for the Heavenly Court, how would you write that question? How would you write it? Any thoughts? I'm not going to sit here and talk to you for an hour. You have to participate a little bit. How would you write it? I'll help you out. You would say, Chikisa Mashiach. Why don't you just say it? Just say it. It's beautiful. It's so poetic. Yeshua. Did you hope? Did you look for salvation? Just say, Chikisa Mashiach. Did you wait for Mashiach? That's the question. So why phrase it? 
in such an ambiguous fashion? Why phrase it in a way other than what it's explicitly meant to convey? And I want to share with you something amazing. If you take a look at number four, look at this piece from Likuti Amarim. The Rebbe Likuti Amarim writes something amazing. He says, Hine, and you'll find this piece, I found this piece to be terribly validating. If you were to ask a group of people, Take a group of Jews. Take any group from amongst this wonderful group. You'll meet them outside after the shir. So just conducting a quick straw poll. Do you want Eliyahu Hanavi to come? What's going to be the answer? 10 out of 10. Of course. Of course. The Rabbi goes on. Of course. Let Eliyahu Hanavi come. Mashiach come. Listen to this. The Mishal Osam Od Haim Chafetzim Atim Shiyavo Hayom Tekef Below Hachana Bahazmana Mikolgam. But tell me, do you want Eliyahu Hanavi to come right now? Right now? Without having an opportunity for preparation? Bevadai Haish Hachacham Bahanavon Yaana Im Shemaod Chashka Nafshki Shiyavo. Most people will answer the following. As much as I want Eliyahu Hanavi to come, If it's okay, not today. Let's calendar this. Right? Let's, let's, get, it on the, let's get it on the schedule. But not today. Not, not by this, there's a good reason. There's a good reason. But not today. Not today. I'm just a human being. I'm not a malach. I'm not an angel. You know, when Eliyahu Hanavi comes, I want to be ready. I want to be ready. There are things that I know that are in a state of disrepair inside of me. There are things that are broken. And the truth is, when Eliyahu Hanavi comes, I want to be in the proper state. I want to be ready. So do I want Eliyahu Hanavi? Absolutely. Do I want him this moment? Absolutely not. I just need, but again, not because I don't want him, because I don't love him, but because when I greet him, and when I welcome him, I want to know that I am in the proper state of spiritual preparedness. That I'm ready for Geula. That's going to take me a little bit of time to get myself ready. It's not an hour. It's not two hours. I need a little bit of time to pull myself together. Can you give me a couple of days? Give me a couple of days just to get myself, myself, in order so that I am ready to greet ABO. Lekabel panaf karoi, and the Rebbe writes, he says meata. But I, I found this to be an incredibly powerful idea, because Rebbe is not saying this tongue in cheek. He means it. If somebody were to come to you and say, "Do you want Eliyahu Hanavi?" Yes. Do you want him now? I'm going to be honest. I don't want him now. I, I mean, I'm being honest. There's stuff that's really broken inside of me. And there's stuff that I want to fix. Because when Eliyahu Navi sees me and I see him and I run into his arms, I want it to be a real embrace. And I want it to be proud of me. And I want to feel confident standing in front of him. I don't want to be embarrassed about unfinished business. I don't want to be embarrassed about things that are still in a state of disrepair. I want to march out to Mashiach with my head held high. And says the Lekute Amorim, this is the difficult nikud, the difficult challenge of Geula. I want Geula, but if I'm honest, I don't want it right this moment. The Talmud Rebbe takes this idea as well. If you look at number five, and this is incredible, the Rebbe writes, he says, Pam nis acher harav mitalna mi lahachnis la'aricha shulchan atar. 
<laughs> Listen to this story. One time the Talmud Rebbe was a little bit late coming into his tish, coming into the Hasidim. When he finally sat down, his bil Hasidov, he explained to his Hasidim, the Rebbe says, I have to tell you why I, why I was late. I was talking with Mashiach. I was talking with Mashiach, the Rebbe says. Mashiach ben David came to me. So what do you talk about with Mashiach? Oh, and Mashiach asked the Talmud Rebbe the following question. I'm conflicted. On one hand, Mashiach says, I'd like to come now. I'd like to reveal myself now. I'd like to bring the Ula now. But there's a problem. You know, something interesting happens when Mashiach comes. If you, take a look, if you skip just for a moment to number six, the Medrash and the Zohar both highlight the same idea. You know, something interesting happens in the Messianic era. We don't accept converts in the Messianic era. No conversions. Do you know why? Because in order to convert, there has to be an Isayon. There has to be a challenge associated with it. Right? Everybody always wants to be on the winning team. So Mashiach comes, of course, there's going to be droves of people who want to convert. No. Before you become a member of Cloud Yisrael, you have to join when things are difficult. You have to join with challenge. In fact, when the first person shows up to convert, we have an interesting process for converts. We do not roll out the welcome mat. In fact, what we say to them is essentially, this is a loose translation, What's the matter with you? What are you doing? Jews haven't cornered the market on God. You can be a righteous Gentile and do a lot less and still find yourself in the good graces of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Not only that, but we're sechufim, we're persecuted, we're downtrodden, we're despised. So the Gemara says, no gerim, no convert to Mashiach. Not only that, do you know what else becomes impossible when Mashiach comes? Tshuva. You can't do tshuva once Mashiach comes. And it's the same idea. Because what's tshuva? Tshuva is the greatest gift that HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave us. The greatest gift, the gift of a do-over. The gift of starting again. The gift of knowing that no matter how bad my mistake is in life, no matter how bad it is, no matter what you do, no sin, no transgression, no Avera is beyond the cathartic effects of tshuva. Tshuva is the greatest thing that HaKadosh Baruch Hu has given you. I could be about tshuva as many times as I need to be throughout just a given day. Forget about a lifetime. But once Mashiach comes, tshuva is no longer an option. And it makes sense. Because tshuva has to be a choice. Tshuva has to be a choice. The reason why tshuva is so powerful and so magnificent and so meaningful, because after I sin and after I make a mistake, I have a choice. I could continue on doing whatever I want, and guess what? The lightning bolt is not going to come out of the heavens and strike me down, because that's not how HaKadosh Baruch Hu works now. So I could continue to sin, continue to do what I want, continue to live whatever lifestyle makes me happy. That's what I could do. Or, I could choose to turn my life around. But it requires a choice. But when Mashiach comes, and the presence of HaKadosh Baruch Hu is revealed, and all of mankind sees in an irrefutable way that HaKadosh Baruch Hu runs the world, and the Riban Shalom drives everything in this universe, there's no tshuva. Isn't that overwhelming? In the Messianic era, there are no gerim, there are no converts, and you cannot become a Balchuva. You cannot make amends for your mistakes. Essentially, Mashiach comes, you're locked in. 
Whatever you got, you got. Whatever mitzvos, whatever averos, and the tragedies, whatever averos that you did not take care of before Mashiach came, that's it. You can't do anything about them anymore for all eternity. They're locked in. Overwhelming. Overwhelming. So the Talmud Rebbe says, Mashiach came to my study. And Mashiach asked me, Talmud Rebbe, what should I do? Here are the choices. I'm ready to come now. I'm ready to come now. I'm ready to bring the Geula. But here's the problem. Says Mashiach, if I come now, what about all of the precious Jews who haven't yet done tshuva? What about all of the precious neshamas who have unfinished business, who have to right the wrongs, who have to fix that which is broken, who have to correct the things that requires attention? What about all of those Jews? They're going to be locked in without the ability to do tshuva. So can you imagine this? Mashiach is asking the Talmud Rebbe for his opinion. The Rebbe thinks about this and listen to what he writes. Va'anisilo, in number five, four lines down the middle of the line. Va'anisilo. Talmud Rebbe writes, I answered Mashiach, Shevada'ati, achein yesh l'rachim al elu ha'neshamas. Talmud Rebbe said, Mashiach, don't come. Don't come. It is better for you to delay your arrival and allow those people who need to do tshuva to do their tshuva. Better for you to wait. Let those who need to do tshuva do their tshuva. So now listen to this. You have to understand. So the Talmud Rebbe walked in late to his chasidim. The chasidim, why is the Rebbe late? The Rebbe gave an explanation. I don't know, it sounds pretty good to me. Solid explanation. So listen to what happened. One of the chasidim spoke up. One of the Hasidim raised his voice and said, Rebbe, it's not fair. Because some people, because some people haven't done tshuva yet, because some people haven't gotten their act together yet, the rest of us have to suffer. And the Rebbe turns to the Hasid and he says, Atta hu echad my dear Chassid, I did it for you. I did it for you. And I think this story, together with the Kote Ambarim, gives us a different perspective. And it's going to sound strange at first, but it's important to understand. At the end of the day, the greatest Chassid that Hashem does for us is delaying the arrival of Mashiach. And I know that when I say it, it sounds weird to say it. And it even sounds like a little bit of apikarsus to say it. That the greatest kindness Hashem does for us is to delay the arrival of Mashiach. Because the Ribbono Shal Olam looks at us and he says, my beautiful, precious children, there is so much work you have to do. There is so much that is in a state of disrepair. There are so many things that need to get fixed. And if I bring my precious messianic messenger today, then although you'll rejoice over his arrival, but what about all of the unfinished business? What about all of the things you still need to fix? What about all of the things you still need to address? Then for all eternity you'll be locked out from making yourself the best version of yourself. And so says HaKadosh Baruch Hu, as much as it hurts me to delay the arrival of Mashiach, I'm doing it for you. You see, we so often think that the fact that Mashiach is not here is a sign of divine displeasure. Hashem is angry. Hashem is upset. Hashem is disappointed. Hashem is disillusioned. I want to tell you something. I can't think of a father who is more proud of his children than the Ribono Shal Olam is of us. Look at who we are. 
We are Am Yisrael. Look at everything we have gone through. And you do not have to reach deep into the annals of history. Less than a century ago, our grandparents were put into ovens, into crematorium, into gas chambers. And here we stand today, on a Tisha B'Av afternoon, in Baruch Hashem, a full shul, learning Torah together. You tell me what kind of father wouldn't be proud of a nation like this? What kind of father wouldn't sit in Shamayim looking down, telling all of the Malachim, those are my kids. Those are my children. As we say to our Kaddish Baruch no matter what's happened, no matter what has happened, we have not forgotten you. So we've been through every single tragedy, catastrophe, barbaric event you could possibly imagine. You know, as I was preparing for Kinos, I found this book that has a detailed, detailed historical accounts of the Crusades. And I ordered it, and I started reading it, and I have to tell you, like, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I couldn't get through it. I couldn't get through it. It was too gruesome. It was too barbaric. It was too overwhelming. That's what we've been through. But despite all of that, we're here. Despite all of that, we've... We cling to our Kodesh Baruch Hu. So we think that Mashiach's non-arrival is because he's angry, because he's upset, because he's disillusioned. And I don't think that's true. I think Mashiach is not here because HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants to give us a chance to get the necessary work done before the doors close forever. Because as beautiful as Mashiach is, once he comes, any unfinished business remains unfinished. And that's the Pshat and the Gemara. You see, the fourth question that we're asked after 120 is not Chikisala Mashiach. Because you know what Chikisala Mashiach, you know what that sounds like? You know what that sounds like? Sitting by the windowsill. Chikisala Mashiach. Just waiting. I'm waiting. Hashemach doesn't want me. A Jew doesn't wait. A Jew doesn't sit passive, inactive, just sitting around waiting for anything. Tzipisa Yeshua means, did you look for moments of personal salvation? Do you want to bring Mashiach? The only thing standing between me and Mashiach is me. Because the Messianic King is ready to come. He's chomping at the bit to come. He wants to come. And the only thing he's waiting for is silver. Come on. Just fix those things you have to fix. You've been living your life with these things in a state of disrepair. How long are you going to ignore it for? I'm ready to come, but if I come, then you never get the opportunity to fix that which is broken inside of you. If I come, then forever, forever, you will remain an incomplete product. But if I do the work I have to do now, Sipisali Yeshua, look for moments of personal salvation. And what's personal salvation? To be honest with myself and to ask myself what's broken inside of me and we all have broken stuff inside of us. We all do. Some of us are acutely aware of that which is broken and some of us do a masterful job of just pushing it to the deepest recesses of our subconscious. But no matter how much I try to run from my broken kite, it's always there. And failure to address it is the one thing that's standing between Klal Yisrael and Mashiach. See, we often talk about what do we need to do to bring Mashiach. And we talk about anything and everything except the real work. The real work to bring Mashiach 
is getting my personal work done. Fixing that which is broken inside of me. Because then once I do that, then Mashiach ultimately feels confident that he could come and that his arrival won't put me at a disadvantage. Because to be honest, if Eliyahu Navi were to come through the doors right now and announce the arrival of Mashiach, most of us would be at a tremendous disadvantage. Because that would mean the stuff that I have to work on can no longer be sorted out. The only thing standing between us and Geula is us. There's an incredible story that's told. The Vilna Gon, sent a number of his students in different waves of Aliyah. The Gon was very focused on building up the Jewish community in Eretz Yisrael. And so in 1809, a third group went. Two previous groups had gone. They were successful, Baruch Hashem. The Vilna Gon dispatched a third group. This group was led by the great Tzaddik, the, the Talmud Mufak, the primary disciple of the Vilna Gon, Rabbi Yisrael of Shklov. This group was comprised of 40 families and a number of single individuals as well. And the story is told that they're on the boat from Leitar to Yisrael and waves threatened to capsize the boat. Don't get upset. Don't get upset. Don't get upset. It's Tishabov. If we get upset at each other for phone ringing, then what do we expect the future to hold for us? They're on the boat. They're on the boat. And literally, again, the waves are so huge, threatening to capsize the boat. And Rabbi Saul of Shklov, having no idea what to do, no idea what to do, figures we're going to borrow a strategy from Safer Yonah. And he tells all of the people from the boat to gather below deck. And he said, a storm like this, which is such an aberration, a storm like this, which is so out of the norm, perhaps it's because of the misdeeds of someone here. So let's gather together and everyone should confess their averus. So I want to read to you the eyewitness account from this story. Everyone waited for someone in the crowd to be the first to confess his sins. A young boy, about 10 years old, stepped forward. He hung his head low and stated that he was sure it was his fault that the storm was threatening their lives. Rav Yisrael and the entire crowd grew quiet and listened. The young boy said that his father was one of the Vilma Gons Tamidim who relished spending time listening to the sweet and mystical words of the Tzaddik's Torah. His mother was the family's breadwinner running a small grocery to make enough money to feed the large family. The young boy continued, I have 11 siblings. The money my mother brought home was insufficient to feed all the mouths in our home. Sometimes my brother and sisters would cry in hunger as there was simply not enough food to go around. I wanted to help in some way, but as you can see, I am a young boy and was limited in what I can do. However, one day, I came up with a good plan. I decided that when I would come home from school the next day, I would tell my parents that there had been an announcement in school. Every day, a free lunch would be served to all of the students. Hearing this, my mother would not feel that I needed to have some of the food at home. And there would be more food for my brothers and sisters. The boy spoke with emotion and the crowd listened rapidly while the storm continued to toss the ship back and forth. Then he lowered his head in shame and began to cry. I'm so sorry I lied. I'm so sorry I lied. For two years I lied every day telling my parents that I had been fed lunch in, sh in school when really I had not. I am so sorry that I lied. As Rabbi Yisrael listened, tears filled his eyes. 
Everyone knew that they had just witnessed something amazing. This precious boy felt that he had sinned and that his sin had caused the storm to threaten their lives. His remorse was so sincere and his purity of heart so genuine that they all broke down and cried. The story then goes on that one after the other, each confessed their averus and the storm stopped. See, sometimes all that we're missing is personal honesty. And you don't have to be honest with anyone else. You don't have to confess anything to anyone else. There's only one person I have to be honest with. And it's me. It's me. Am I willing to look a hard look at myself and ask myself, what's broken inside of me? But I have to resist the temptation after I find that which is broken. Because often what happens is even if I get through that first step and I'm able to identify that which is broken, the reflexive reaction is to blame it on someone else. Yeah, it's true, this is broken, but. There's always the but. But it's this one, but it's that one, but it's this circumstance, but it's that circumstance. If we could only be honest with ourselves, just with ourselves, it doesn't require anyone else to take a step back and to say, okay, I'm going to address that which is broken. I'm going to be honest about it. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to stop pretending that it's okay. I'm going to stop inventing alternate, alternative hashkafas to justify what I do. I'm just going to own it. Because all of us are imperfect. And all of us have imperfections. And all of us make mistakes. And the greatest mistake is perpetuating mistakes. The greatest mistake is a failure to be honest. And that's all HaKadosh Baruch Hu is waiting for, for our benefit. Mashiach is ready to come. Mashiach is ready to come. He just doesn't want His arrival to put us at a disadvantage. So all He wants from me is fix whatever you have to fix. And I am ready to come. I'm ready to be here. So what do we have to fix? I just want to talk about a few things in a general, two minutes, in a general sense. Then we'll come back to the personal sense. There is no shortage of shiurim speaking about or highlighting the need for avas Yisrael. But it seems to be that no matter how many shiurim and how many speakers and how many initiatives and campaigns we have, it still feels like it's far away and elusive. We have to learn to love each other. And loving each other doesn't mean making someone like you. I am haunted by the scenes at the egalitarian plaza by the Kosel that happened a couple of weeks ago. Now, I want to go on record as saying, I do not support egalitarian prayer at the Kosel. But, if there is a spot that's designated for people to do their thing, for other Jews to show up, tear up Sidurim, disrupt the bar, whatever was going on over there, you're not doing the Lord's work. That's a chalashan. We have to learn to accept people who are not like us. We have to learn to reach out to people who are not like us. And I don't mean, oh, you should reach out to your non-from co-worker, invite them over to Shabbos, you can make them from. Don't try to make people from. Don't try to change people from anything, from what they already are. All your job is, there's only one entity in this universe that makes people. And that's HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And unless you're God, don't try to make people. You should love people. Open up your home to people. Open up your heart to people. Don't surround yourself just with people who look like you, practice like you, believe like you. Because you are selling your cloudy Israel experience short. Reach out to other Jews. 
And we all have access to all kinds of Jews. And by all kinds of Jews, it means a lot of things. If you're modern, it could be Haredi. If you're Haredi, it's modern. If you're Litvish, it's Yeshivish. If you're Orthodox, it's Conservative. Whatever it is, whoever is on your other side of the aisle, don't circle your wagons. And don't let your cloudy soul experience just be about you. Cloudy soul, this is very important. You think that when the base Hamikdash stood, all of cloudy soul worshipped the same way? You think everybody was like, I don't know, you know, modern yeshivish? You know, you think everybody, everybody was the same way? Cloudy soul was never the same way. Never the same way. We've always been a spectrum. And the incredible power of cloudy souls, there could be unity even with profound differences. But we have to learn to respect each other. We have to learn to give cover to one another. Even if what we feel the other is doing is wrong, I could voice my differences. I could engage in proper debate. I can go ahead and say, you know, I really, I love you, but I think this is wrong. I don't think you should do this. And we can have a conversation about it. But to embarrass another Jew, to defile another Jew, to trample upon another Jew, that we can't do. Imagine, I spoke about this in my shul on Shabbos, but imagine if we were just nice to each other. Just nice. You don't have to love your fellow Jew like you love yourself. You don't have to. You just have to be nice. You just have to be nice. If Cloud Yisrael were nice to each other, imagine. Imagine what the world would look like. And this theme of treating each other with dignity has to permeate into many areas of life. And I think one of the other areas where we need to become nicer is in the realm of Shiduchim. Everybody talks about the Shidduch crisis. I'm not talking about the Shidduch crisis. And I was actually even reticent to bring this up. I'm just talking about Bein Adam Lechavero. Bein Adam Lechavero. I had a mother who called me up this week in tears. In tears. She said that her, boy, her, her daughter was read to a particular boy. And the boy's mother said, Oh, we have a stack of resumes. A stack of resumes. Stack of resumes. We reduce Jewish women to commodities. A stack of resumes? I don't know who the bigger problem is with the mother or with the son who may not really be a Ben Torah. But that's not how we talk about each other. And that's not how we deal with one another. Stack of resumes. I'll give you some simple Shidduch advice. Take it or leave it. Your child gets read a Shidduch. Never ever compare that Shidduch to some other Shidduch. Because the moment you take two resumes and you push them side by side, hmm, who should we go with? Rachel or Leah? Sada or Rivka? Well, let's see. What are the major points we should? You are being mevaza. You are being mevaza, a Jewish woman. And the onesh and the punishment and the severity of being mevaza, of going ahead and humiliating a Jewish girl who's just trying to get started in her life is unforgivable. And it's not just the girls. Sanman told me of another story of a young man, wonderful Ben Torah, wonderful young man, doing very well in yeshiva, comes from a divorced home. And he met with the shantrin and he said to the shantrin, I know I'm going to have a difficult time in Shiduchin. When did we become such elitists? Do you know I want to tell you something? Go back enough in anyone's family tree, oh, I guarantee you're going to find something. Something. A boy who's poring over a Gemara day and night, who's a Mavakesh, who's someone who wants to be closer to Hashem, and this young boy just starting out has to be robbed of all idealism because his par- something happened with his parents. Something happened with his parents. Where do we have the chutzpah to stand in judgment of people? 
Where do we have the chutzpah to tell a young man that he's worth less because his parents' marriage didn't work out? Where do we get the chutzpah to demand a picture of a young woman with her shidduch resume? But pictures circulating everywhere. When did we become like this? When did we become like this? And I know it's not the normal story. My grandparents met at a soup kitchen in Hungary after the war. My grandfather was running the soup kitchen. He was 28. My grandmother was 18 years old. And I bet their conversation went something like this. Your whole family was murdered. My whole family was murdered. Neither of us have anyone else left in this world. You know what? Let's try to rebuild. And to their credit, they left this world with multiple generations of children who are Shomrei Torah, Ohave Torah, and Ohave Hashem. I'm not suggesting that that is the model for Shiduchin. But I am saying that we have to stop mistreating each other. Because it is a lack of ben Adam Lechabiro, the way we treat Shiduchim. And I'm telling you, I'm a no one. I'm a no one. And someone like me is not going to go ahead and change the Shiduch system. But all of us together can. All of us together can. If we stop, and somebody's got to do it. If we stop, if we stop, if we stop doing this, if we stop eviscerating each other, if we stop mistreating each other, if we stop judging one another, if we stop looking down on other Jews because of something we perceive that makes them less, that's something we can fix. How do you think HaKadosh Baruch Hu looks at it when he sees these Shiduchim being arranged? How do you think he thinks about it? And he's thinking, oh, that, yeah, that, that's a good one, that's a good one. That, that, oh, totally right, totally right. That guy, yeah, he learned for two years, three years, one and a half years, this. How do you think HaKadosh Baruch Hu looks at it? Well, all of us know, maybe not all of us know, some of us know what it's like when you hear someone speak not nicely about your child. So when we are mevazah one another, when we disrespect each other in the realm of shiduchim, then ultimately we're speaking ill of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's children. And when you speak ill of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's children, the Ribbono Shal Olam puts his hands, his head in his hands and cries. This says, what are they doing to each other? The world eats them out, eats them up and spits them out. The world destroys them. The world does all of this. And look what they do to each other. Do you know how many hearts are broken within Cloud Israel every single day because of a dysfunctional Shidduch system? And by the way, there's no dysfunctional Shidduch system. There's just dysfunctional Jews. Dysfunctional Jews who really go about things in the wrong way. You get a shidduch suggested, you look at the boy, you look at the girl, you ask the midos. People can't control their families. They can't control where they come from or who they're born to or where they live. They can't control those things. How dare we stand in judgment of another Jew and hide behind some type of shidduch code? It's Tishabaf. It's Tishabaf. Are we ready? To be done with Gullus? Are we ready? Are we ready to? I'm not even going to take a show of hands. But are we ready? We're ready. We're ready. How much more of this can we take? Another war unfolding now in Eretz Yisrael. Hopefully, again, a, a ceasefire brokered. Always, always something. How much longer? How much longer? And what we learn from the Talmud Rebbe, what we learn from the Kutah Amarim, what we learn from that little boy on the boat. Or we saw of Shkov is all we have to do is fix that which is broken inside of us. So let us make a Kabbalah. Here's what I'm asking of all of us. All of us. All of us. Don't, don't just come to a shir on Tishabov because it's in between videos, right? So I'll hop a shir, get a video, pass the day. You come to a shir on Tishabov because I want to change. I want to do something different. So let's do something different. Let's work on our Abbas Yisrael. Not to change people, 
not to make someone from. Don't try to change people. Just love people. Figure out someone who you can make an outreach to, someone you can connect with. Just to forge even a cordial, superficial relationship. That's all. Someone to say Shalom Aleichem and hello. Someone you could get a cup of coffee with. Someone you could invite over for a Shabbos meal. Simple, simple, nothing big. But just forge that meaningful relationship together. That's number one. Number two. For those who are in the parish of Shiduchim or those who are involved in Shiduchim or Shadchanim, stop. Stop eviscerating one another. Stop standing in judgment of other Jews. Let's do things differently. Let's chas v'shalom never make a Jewish girl feel like a commodity. Never make a Jewish boy feel like he doesn't measure up because of some external circumstance. Let's do what we can, each of us in our own way, to change the paradigm. And number three, let's each find the courage to find something broken within ourselves. Not five things, not three things, one thing. I'm going to ask you, it's 4.08. Wow, it's late. The fast is over. The fast is over. About four and a half hours. Before you make Havdalah tonight, spend the time, identify for yourself that broken thing that you are going to correct. Identify it, make your plan to fix it, and no later than tomorrow, begin to execute. Because if each of us does that, begins to fix the things that are broken inside of us, then Amir Hashem, Mashiach will have no choice but to come. He's waiting for us. He doesn't want to disadvantage us. So if we say on this Tisha B'Av 5782 message heard, we got it, you're doing it for us, thank you. I'm going to fix me. I'm going to get me in order. And then Mashiach, I'll be ready for you. We should be Zalcha Mirza Hashem. Then, in the merit of our Avod on this day, may we be Zalcha Mirza Hashem to fix that which is broken. Welcome the arrival of the Mashiach. See our beautiful rebuilt Beis Hamikdash. Experience Trias Hamesim. All of those beautiful brachos from here, Rabbi Amenu. Amen.